0: Optimal minimal. At this altitude, I can run flat out for a half mile before my hands start shaking. shake. Can I answer your personal question? Now we the perfect time. What if I get the eye? I'm a cybernetic organism, living tissue over metal endoskeleton. This episode is brought to you by Athletic Greens. Hello, homies and homets. This is Tim Ferriss, and welcome to another episode of The Tim Ferriss Show, where my job is to deconstruct world-class performers, to dig into the minds of people who are the best at what they do, to try to pull out the tactics, the routines, the habits, the favorite books, etc., coping strategies in some cases that you can implement right away. And that ranges from hedge fund managers to chess prodigies to celebrities like Arnold Schwarzenegger to iconic music producers like Rick Rubin and everything in between. This particular episode was an experiment and I think very appropriately an experiment because it includes two people, a couple, my first couple on the podcast. The first person is Dr. Astro Teller. So Astro is a computer scientist and entrepreneur who currently oversees Google X, which is Google's moonshot factory. They basically Try to do anything that seems completely absurd and world changing, uh like putting up balloons to give broadband to the entire planet, or who knows, teleportation, you name it. If it's if it's crazy enough and big enough, chances are it falls under his purview. Then you have Dr. Danielle Teller, his wife, who is a physician specializing in intensive care and lung medicine. She has trained doctors and run research at Harvard University and the University of Pittsburgh, for instance. They are both very, very powerful minds. And our conversation is about many things, but it focuses on something I personally have not figured out, which is relationships. And both Astro and Daniel know from personal experience that finding the right life partner doesn't always happen the first time around. And through their own respective divorces, they learned how widely held assumptions and misinformation about relationships, what they refer to as sacred cows, create all sorts of unnecessary suffering. Uh, so the, The approach here and the idea was to really dig in because these are two very driven people dig into the rigor that has established both of them as leaders in their respective fields to have them walk me through how they think about relationships. How do you take two very type A personalities and have them survive and thrive in a relationship? That's something I have not figured out. But these two really seem to have figured out uh, many different aspects. So we sat down to have some wine. And uh, so thank you for putting up with all sorts of echoes and uh, dramatic wine pouring acoustics. But uh, I greatly enjoyed this conversation. And I hope you do as well. So please meet doctors Astro and Daniel Teller. Welcome to Tim Ferriss's Dining Table. This is clearly Tim Ferriss, and we have some incredible guests here. We've already warmed up with a bite to eat, some salmon, as well as some wine. We've had some Malbec, of course, as you know, one of my favorites. This is Trapiche Terroir Series 2009, and we have a backup just in case we need that to facilitate the conversation so you don't hear a bunch of sighing and glugs of wine for an hour and a half or two hours. <laughs> uh, I don't think that'll be a problem. Uh, we have two very, very bright folks here. And what makes these folks <laughs> so interesting is that they are a couple. This is the first time I've interviewed uh, a, a couple. And, a, and on top of that, people who can talk about not just being top performers in their respective fields, but how to harmonize a family, how to operate with significant others uh, and with children. So I'm really looking forward to exploring this. And, uh, we have Danielle and Astro Teller. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for it's having nice us.
1: Yeah.
0: And, uh, I, I know it's, it's very typical to sort of ask you to do the Dr. Eagle thing and, and explain, uh, your background, but, uh, there's a lot that can be found. I'm sure on the web when people want to, to search and explore your respective expertise, but I do want to dig into, uh, a little bit of what both of you are up to to provide some context for the the conversations that we 'll have and the topics we 'll dig into so uh, maybe we could start with you, Danielle, and just chat a little bit about uh what you 've been obsessed with or what has consumed you for the last year year and a half, and what you uh, maybe a snapshot of what you did before that
1: sure um my Current obsession is uh, writing. So, writing was my childhood dream. I always wanted to write novels. I was a typical bookworm. Loved to just immerse myself in books all day. And then I realized that it's a really, really hard way to make money. Yeah. And I got scared and decided to go to medical school instead. But for the last year, (laughs) I have actually returned to my childhood dream, and I'm writing a novel about Cinderella's stepmother, which has been a lot of fun.
0: Yeah. Why Cinderella's stepmother?
1: I mostly, honestly, because I am a stepmother and I yeah. think a lot about being a stepmother. And the more I think about it, the more I think they get a really bad rap in fairy tales. They're yeah. always the bad guy. Yeah. The mom's always dead. And if there's a villain, it's most often the stepmother. And I just, yeah, I wanted to sort of correct people's impression of that about stepmothers a little bit. I feel like the stories are not being told from the stepmother's perspective. So this one is from her perspective.
0: And what, uh, what were you doing prior to starting this writing?
1: Prior to that, I was working most recently in Boston at Harvard uh, as a physician and researcher. So I did my teaching and my medical work in the intensive care unit. And I did my research in a basic science lab. I had a small lab that I ran there and we looked into the origins of chronic lung disease. That's what we were excited about.
0: And, uh, the, so the chronic lung disease is interesting to me. Some people may know this already, but uh, so I won't belabor the point, but I was born premature and had uh, a lot of lung issues when I was born yeah. and um, my left lung collapsed and had uh, five uh, full body blood transfusions. And I still have a lot of thermoregulation problems hmm. that, uh, that I, I think are related to my sort of decreased respiratory volume. Mm-hmm. So I can't dissipate heat as well. Hmm. Uh, but we can, we can dig into that perhaps another time. Uh, Astro, what about yourself? Well,
2: uh, over the last year, uh, for my day job, I've been spending time at Google X and uh, trying to make the world a better place. Having a good time doing it, and then uh, Danielle and I have finished uh, the book Sacred Cows. I mm-hmm. uh, got it out there and are starting to explore what we might write next together.
0: How do you choose? How do the two of you? And I asked her, of course, we've known each other for for quite a few years now. And how do you ch- how do you decide what the next big project is or the next you mean personally, or you mean at Google X either if you, and, and uh, I mean that, that tells me that you separate the two also. So, so what, how do you choose either of them or both of them?
2: I don't think they are that separated. I think choosing anything to spend your time on or to have a group of people spend their time on is a confluence of events and opportunities You know, at at Google X, we focus more on, you know, is there a huge problem? Is there a radical new way to get at solving that problem? Is there some science or technology perspective from which we really think we could make progress on that radical solution? Mm -hmm. That's the confluence that we tend to look for there. But it really does mean that you can have two of those things. And if the third one doesn't connect, there's just nothing to be done. But in our case, you know we were both going through divorces and then ended up uh, marrying each other and because we were going through our divorces at the same time we spent a lot of time as we were falling in love and preparing to get married talking about our divorces and that led to ultimately this book yeah. where we would never have planned to write a non self help book about you know the truth behind marriage and divorce mm-hmm. if we had been happily married and just like met at a playground or on the street and said, Hey, you want to write a book together? That's just not realistic. And I think a lot of the opportunities that come to us in life Mm -hmm. are these confluence of events that you can't plan on. You can only recognize when they happen.
0: Now, does that mean this is, that's, that's, that is something that I often say when people ask me what my 10 year plan is. Do you have a 10 year plan? Because I, I feel very conflicted about preventing the serendipity of these confluence of factors by having a very long-term plan that I try to hold to. Is that, what's your thinking on that?
2: My long-term plan, I've I've had the same answer for that for kind of a while. Again, I think this is both in my professional life and in my, what's called pseudo-professional life. Mm -hmm. Like writing books, uh, I want to be working on really hard things that matter with really amazing people I can learn from. Yeah, and that has nothing to do with whether I'm getting paid to do it, whether it's because my co-author in a book is mm-hmm. my amazing wife, or if it's people who I work with at Google X or at some other place in the future. I won't do anything that doesn't have those characteristics, and I'll sign up for almost anything that has those characteristics.
0: Hmm. That's a good answer. <laughs> I, how do the two of you, uh, maybe Daniel, you chat, you talk about this. How do you a- attack problems differently or, or do you, maybe you have complementary skill sets. Uh, I'm just very curious when you have a challenge as, uh, as a couple, or if you were just in a, in a parallel universe, sort of working together and trying to solve problems in front of you, whatever those might be. How do you, how I- do you,
1: I think we're actually fairly similar in how we approach challenges. It, in the, how we approach the future, we're quite different. Astro's a planner, and I'm not. I read a column a long time ago by David Brooks, where he described, you know, everyone's got two kinds of people, but he described these two kinds of people, either the planners who have got everything worked out for the next decade or two. And then there are the people who wander through life looking for the next open door. And if it looks interesting, they go through it and they don't really worry about whether that's part of a 10 year plan or not. So he's the former, I'm the latter. So we're very different in terms of planning yeah. about the future, etc. But I think I think when new challenges arise, we both tend to be very um logical people mm-hmm. and that it's not that we're not passionate or emotional about things, but we both approach problems from a pretty intellectual perspective. And so because we approach them the same way. I think that helps us to talk through them and get as close as we can to a solution.
2: Mm-hmm. I think that's true. I would, uh, color commentary on that. We have a joke, uh, which is if we were, uh, world war two era Brit- British, uh, posters, right. she would be keep calm and carry on. And you know, the Silicon Valley version of that, the one that's all green and has, uh, crown at the top, but if you look closely, it's made out of like wrenches and screwdrivers and stuff. Okay. And it says, get excited and make things. Ah, yes. That's me. That's you. (laughs) And and it's not... I I think there's actually quite a bit of truth in that. My way of trying to get through adversity is to change things, Mm -hmm. is to put out effort. When things get really shitty, I don't like to sit around. I like to change something, and I kind of just... Uh, uh, churn up my gears if I can't, mm-hmm. and Danielle's sort of the opposite. That when things get really complicated, she can be much more zen and patient and just get through it. Mm-hmm. Um, that doesn't chew up her gears.
0: Ned, uh, so I've I've obviously uh, I've listened to the TED Talk that you guys did together. Um, I've uh, I've read through the book, and even though it it is looking at relationships, not exclusively, certainly, but, uh, through the shared experience that you have, um, many shared experiences, but one of them being divorce. Uh, I found that a lot of the, the thought experiments and questions in this were, were very fascinating. And, uh, we're going to delve into a lot of that. I, I, and, and I'm sure we'll jump around, but, but I'd love to start with the, the idea of a, uh, a soulmate and sort of the one that is, is meant for any given person, you know, there's that, that shining star and, uh, I'd love for you guys to, to, to talk about your position on that. And, uh, maybe as part of that, just elaborate, this is something I'm 37, of course, I'm thinking about these as well. Like what, what were the non-negotiables for you? Both that allowed you and are it that, that are allowing you to have a happy union. Does that make sense? I you can you can separate those two it things, is, but those are two totally different questions. Yeah, I those think. are two totally different questions. Um, that I thought I would just make one very difficult, long question. <laughs> but, you,
2: you want to answer the one true cow and I'll answer the second one?
1: Sure. Uh, so the way we approach it in the book is as one approaches religion. Mm-hmm. which is to say I might be a very strong believer in my religion and feel that at, at an emotional level as well as an intellectual level that what I believe is true and recognize that other people don't have that faith, that they mm-hmm. can't, they just don't believe it, they can't bring themselves to believe it even if they wanted to believe it. I was a an agnostic, I guess, about mm-hmm. true love. Well, I was an atheist about true love, I guess. I, I really didn't believe that there was such a thing as true love. And I approached my life through that lens, basically. When we fell in love, it was as though the way I viewed everything in life changed. I just, I saw even the literature I'd read before, poetry I'd read before. I felt like all of a sudden I had this superior vision. I could tell which poets were really in love and which ones weren't. It's it's hmm. like having tasted something or experienced something for the first time and then you sort of see it around you and and I don't know, it's it's you see something that wasn't there before.
0: Right. It's like the sixth sense when they're like, "Oh my god, the red doorknob." Exactly, exactly,
1: exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So so I I think that what we say in the book is that we're believers and yet we recognize that not everyone is and I don't know. I mean, certainly we don't think that everybody's going to find their soulmate or that there's a soulmate for everybody or that there's even just one soulmate for, for people, but that there is a very important qualitative difference between different kinds of romantic love that not every romantic love is the same. And, and, um, there are some types of love that just require that you be together and Plato described it, uh, you know, the original sort of Platonic ideal of love was that humans were cut in half uh, by Zeus and were forced to wander the world looking for their other half. And then once they found their other half, they just became bonded to that other half and they could just lie down and stay together for forever. And if you ask them, what is it that you want? What is it that you're looking for? They wouldn't be able to tell you what it was, and Plato says it's not sex. It's not, you know, it's they can't explain what it is because mm-hmm. they have just found that that thing.
2: So uh, D- Danielle got uh, the poetic version. Let me give you the intellectual version. Okay. So I personally agree with her. Mm-hmm. So what I'm about to describe to you is what we say in the book on the same subject. Mm-hmm. I feel exactly the same that I was an atheist and I'm now religious in this sense about true love, but one of the boogeymen in our societies in our society on the subject of marriage and divorce, one of the unfair narratives which society keeps and uses to bludgeon people as it chooses is that true love exists before marriage. Yeah. If you're not married yet, then your only best, highest purpose in life is to find true love. And anything is worth it to find that thing. Including, up to and including, ditching somebody moments before you say the words, I do.
0: Yeah. Well, that was one of the thoughts.
2: And and yet, moments after you say the words, I do, Yeah. True love does not exist because if you tell your family, if you tell your parents, if you tell your spouse for sure, if you tell your children moments after you get married, weeks, months, or years after you get married, right. that you have now fallen in love with somebody else yeah. or that you think love is out there, but it's not with your current spouse. Right what will everyone tell you they will absolutely positively tell you that what you have is as good as it's ever going to right. get and that schizophrenia that like we want to have it one way up to marriage but then we all pretend that it's the opposite that this thing doesn't exist after marriage right. that's bs and that's it's hypocritical and our society uses this to try to create Fear and shame to force people into marriage, but then to try to keep them from leaving marriage. And though we're believers in true love, we're not advocates for true love or against true love. We're really advocating against hypocrisy, that it can't be both.
0: Yeah, yeah. Okay. No, that's fair. Now, so I realized my question about the uh, sort of the one true love might might actually not be the right question. So before we... That, that's, that's sort of predicated on I think a narrative that a lot of people have, which is find the one true love, get married, have kids. And, uh, in my own personal life, looking at a lot of my, my friends, there are people who are happily married. And I, I do know some older, uh, folks, usually men that I'm closest with who have been happily married for a long time. And I'm sure they have their ups and downs, but I've also seen the sort of the collateral damage or the, uh, the explosions of marriages all around me, just with friends who are saying they're in the mid thirties or so. And so I'd love to ask both of you, what is your, what are the misconceptions when people think of the word marriage? What should they think of? How should they define it for themselves? What, what does it represent? And, uh, is it for everybody? I mean, is, is there, is, is it a, I, I, as I think a lot of people feel pressured to, to strive towards marriage uh, and then the, the downstream effects of kids and whatnot. But when people are thinking of marriage and feeling that type of pressure, as I do sometimes, quite frankly, uh, how would you, what what advice would you give them?
1: I don't think there is a should. I, I think if we would advocate for anything, it's just having the space to make your own decision without a lot of social pressure Mm -hmm. that the social pressure doesn't, help. And it's not right. aimed always in the right direction. Yeah. So I, I think that there are a lot of different reasons to get married and I'm not sure. I mean, you know, we talk about true love in these high highfalutin ways, like it's this really awesome thing, which it is, yeah. but not everyone finds that. And maybe if you don't believe in it, you're not going to experience it. You know, just like some alternative medical treatment. Yeah. If you don't believe it, then you don't experience it. Like maybe you right. need to be predisposed yeah. to, to it some people get married because they want to have a family and they like the person that they're with and it's not true love, but that doesn't mean it's wrong. I guess people just need to go into it with an open, with open eyes and, and realize what their motivation is and realize that they're going to, what they end up getting out of it, what they experience in marriage is going to have a lot to do with why they got into marriage in the first place. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, having both been married and divorced before, we would wish that everyone could be happily married, mm-hmm. but certainly marriage isn't for everybody because being unhappily married is not better than being single. I mean, it's sometimes lonely to be single. There, there are downsides to being single, but there are a lot of downsides to being unhappily married too. Yeah.
2: The other thing I would say is that marriage is not only something that you can enter into for different reasons, but... One of the main challenges associated with marriage and divorce is that people don't necessarily go into them with clear expectations that they share with themselves, even, or let alone with their spouse. So one of the other sacred cows that we talk about is the holy cow. Mm -hmm. And we talk about the marriage contract as though it were almost like a business contract. And the concept of a contract is that you pre-negotiate friction. That's the entire point of a contract.
0: Yeah. It's not not for the best-case scenario. That's right. But when you look
2: at the marriage contract, that is the vows that people say in front of their friends and family, it is the worst possible form of a contract. (laughs) It has all of the pressure and seriousness of a big contract, but it is ultimately ambiguous. Because to say... I promise to love you for the rest of my life, since that's not something anyone can control how they will feel in the future is to leave completely unspoken what actually you're promising now. So if you were to say, I promise to stay with you no matter how miserable I am, that's a concrete promise, not a very romantic one, but it's a concrete promise. If you were to say, look, I hope that I love you for the rest of my life. If I stop loving you, Like, I'm going to work really hard to work it out with you and and start loving you again. But if I can't, I'm going to leave and you should want me to leave. Like, that's also concrete. But we don't, as we're entering into marriage, have a real conversation, typically, with our soon-to-be spouse about what it is we think we're getting into, what it is that they think they're getting into, and whether or not it's the same. Because a lot of the hard feelings that happen at the end are really generated by this ambiguity that's set up at the beginning.
1: And I think our society makes it harder for people to really think about these things in a really rational way because of the pressures you're talking about. I think Mm -hmm. because society just puts a lot of pressure on people to get them to the altar, but also the way we've turned weddings into this fairy tale event. Yeah. I think it really places the emphasis on sort of the magic of love. And love is wonderful, but we can't let our desire to have this wonderful romantic event make us blind to the fact that love isn't something that we control Mm -hmm. you know that love is actually an emotion and it's not something that you can just there's no switch inside your heart that you can just turn on that will make you love someone, or if that love fades away, that can make you continue to feel the way that you used to feel. I mean, if there were, Match.com would be the most successful business in the world, right? You just pick someone who seemed like they fit certain criteria, you just reach in for your love switch, turn it on, you'd be like, oh, I'm so in love with you, this is great, right? But it doesn't work that way. and. And it doesn't work that way after you're married either. There's no magic threshold that you cross. You're the same as the person that you dated for two years that you thought was really great for the first eight months and then things got worse and worse. And you finally decided to go your separate ways. It's not really any different. If you happen to have gotten married before that eight month had right. elapsed, you would be in the same position, but society would see it very differently and yeah. would, and would t- treat your feelings very differently.
0: So here's a, here's a question for you guys then if, uh you, you both experienced divorce. Uh, why did you choose to officially get married again? Because I, I mean, of all the places that, uh, granted there's still pressure, but of all the places that are somewhat forgiving, the Bay area is pretty forgiving. I mean, there's, there's something for everybody here and, uh, maybe some other podcast I'll talk about the time I accidentally wandered into a polyamorous dinner party by myself. And then they all sat down to do self introductions, and I was like, "I do I get out! I don't get out! Oh my god!" I was a big party. I'm not sure. If, anyway, that's a separate time. But there's, the point being that the, the Bay Area, San Francisco, is is pretty forgiving. I think as 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 far as those things go in the United States. So why did you guys choose to get officially married again?
2: It, it had nothing to do with what society wanted. I wouldn't have felt whole until we'd been married. Mm -hmm. I would have been fine not to get married for the rest of my life otherwise. So it's not about marriage per se, but it just would have been tragic to have found my other half and then not to have gotten to get married to her. That would have been...
0: Just not sort of a, it's just, it's formalizing like a, that devotion? Uh, uh,
2: I mean, whatever. We didn't need the wedding to know that we have the feelings that we have. Right. But to not celebrate it uh, just would have been a missed opportunity. Do I yeah, don't know, You just, know
1: when you're madly crazy about someone and you just want to do everything you can to bring yourself closer to that person? Sure. That it's a it's just another level that brings you closer. It's not that we wouldn't have been happy living together without being married, but it's when you're, when you're that in love, you want to be bonded in every possible way. And it's yeah. just another way.
0: Yeah, no, no, I, 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 I get it. And I just, I had to ask, uh, the, uh, I want to come back to the, the one true cow for a second. <laughs> Uh, because I, I feel like there are many, many people, and I talk to a lot of friends, for instance, who have been with someone for a long time. They feel like if they were putting together a report card for that person, you know, they're like they're, they're doing really well. Like they're they're in the ninetieth plus percentile, and they're like a ten out of ten on all these various important things. But then they're very, very low on a couple of other maybe uh, critical factors, right? But they feel like this person is as close to the one true love that I've found. I'm I'm X years of age. Um, let's pretend like the kids is not a, a, a factor at this point. Uh, if I break up with them, I have to start from scratch. I, I just feel like that type of anxiety is very pervasive.
1: Yeah.
0: Uh, where there's a certain uh, maybe sunk cost fallacy um, that just that goes along with being with someone for a long time. But if you were sort of advising a friend, what, what would you say to them? What questions would you have them ask themselves or, or how would you help them get through that? Because I think it's, it's easy for people in that situation to feel like they could roll the dice and go out and continue searching. But it's like having a, a revolver that they're playing Russian roulette with where there's, you know, a hundred chambers and 99 of them are loaded. Um, and there's that fear factor. So that, so they don't, leave. Right. Yeah. What, did, what what would you say? And stop very difficult question, but uh, I mean, it's not an uncommon situation. What, what, what might you say to someone like that?
1: Yeah. I mean, it's really hard. Mm-hmm. I don't think that we are very good at giving advice in the situations because we yeah. know people who have chosen to get married for a number of different reasons. And there's more than one, reason that works for people. So I guess, yeah. I guess my but, question to them but, would be what, what is it that you want? You know, why, Like, why do you want to get married? And if your answer is that you want someone to grow old with that, you want someone to have children with that you really value the familial bond, yeah.
0: it,
1: it may not be that smart to just continue to wander the world and look for your other half because yeah. you're not guaranteed to find your other half. And you might get to a place where you feel like, wow, now I'm too old to have kids now. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm, not, I am i do not have what I want, but if, I guess if you, if what you want is this, if it's more about the passion, then yeah. I think you have to be extra careful about what you're getting into.
2: So we run this experiment, I'd say at least two weekends a month. My brother is single yeah. and my brother, uh, meets a lot of wonderful women and, uh, He's just never found someone that he wants to marry. And yeah. he asks essentially exactly what you just asked.
0: How old is and it he? He's
2: 41 now. Yeah. Two years younger than me. And, um,. So he asks us this, and we say the same thing to him every time. Then there's a presu- and there's a presumption, there's a presumption buried in he's here.
1: He's not very bright, but he's actually incredibly bright. <laughs> he's incredibly bright. Uh, well, but, that's, but it's, I it's stupid. Because this is a so, hard
2: yeah. question. Um, but what we tell him is, for God's sakes, if you don't have to be with them, don't be with them. Right. Not only don't get married, but probably don't even date them. Like, move on. Yeah. But... Hidden in that statement is an understanding that we have about him in particular, that we believe that he's wired the way we happen to be wired. That is that he has it in him to feel the thing that we feel. We, I think, I believe he does and that he will be unhappy. I believe he will be unhappy if he settles. Mm -hmm. Which, as Danielle pointed out, that is not true for everybody. That's not necessarily at the top of everybody's list. But because we believe it's at the top of his list, Mm -hmm. having something that is qualitatively better than anything he's experienced before, what we tell him is, if you don't have to be with them, you probably have to not be with them. Mm. Right. And that's not a checklist. When you get to the place where you have to be with someone, there's no, like, there are a 9 out of yeah, 10 there. It's, it's just, it's different. Yeah. Okay.
0: What, now, uh, of the marriages that uh, you both have observed where the couples would uh, honestly say they are happy, right? They're not, they're not putting on a show. They're not acting. What were the reasons they decided to get married? right? So if the outcomes are highly dependent on sort of the reasons for getting married in the first place, what are the reasons that tend to have better outcomes than others?
1: I think it's when the couple is aligned in their reasons. Mm -hmm. So I do know couples who have gotten married really to have children. I mean, mm-hmm. it's not that they didn't love each other, but it was much I think more. a lot of
0: people it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's accelerated or the decision is made for them.
1: Right. So they might not have ended up together, except that having children was what they wanted and they love being parents and they love their families. They just yeah. love being part of a family. So I, I think that that can work. But you know, the one thing I, I feel, this is just, you know, my opinion. When I see people who are happily married, I remember one time sitting around the Thanksgiving table, uh, and my brother and his wife were there. And he described looking at his wife with, he'd been with her for 10 years, you know, married for five years or something like that. And, and he described looking at her and thinking, that's my girl. And I just thought, like, that feeling that you have of, like, I'm just, I'm so happy that I'm with that person. I'm just, I admire that person. I'm proud that this person's my spouse. I, I just love being with that person. That is a, one of the qualities I think that I see in the happiest marriages.
0: Hmm. What well, Astro, what are the, uh, I think you and I have some similar DNA. Uh, well, I mean, beyond, beyond the fact that a lot of humans have a lot of similar DNA, but the, uh, yeah, <laughs> 90, do, like 90% the same. Too, chimps, actually, right? yeah. Uh so that's, that's pretty close as well. But, I'm feeling really close to you right now. Yeah. Yeah. yeah no. Um, uh, so I, what are the what are the most common mistakes that you've observed that sort of type A personality driven guys make when it comes to these big relationship decisions?
2: I don't know if th- this is going to be a list of the things you know in proper order that are a problem, but I'll tell you a story. I like stories. All right. I have a friend who had um, become single and had moved to a new city and was just, he's a good looking guy. He's in his late thirties and he was just having a hard time kind of getting back into the swing of, um, being single. Mm -hmm. And he went from that to discovering Tinder in this case. (laughs) And once he got on Tinder, he went from almost, not seeing anybody to exhausting himself with how many people that he was seeing. He described it almost like being able to just select the attributes that he wanted, like ordering a pizza, and then the girl would appear almost literally at his doorstep. <laughs> And the thing that I thought was interesting about this was that he said after he had ordered a good 30 of women who happened to fall into a particular category, they were right. blonde, they were six years younger than him, they'd all gone to Stanford, you know, technical, that he had this set of things that he was positive were his type. Right. And he said, now that I've been with like 30 of those women, I've discovered that's not my type. Huh. And I think that That's probably more typical than not. And he just discovered it a lot faster than many people do. But the types that we think we have come from the movies, come from who knows what our parents said to us we were supposed to be with from our own insecurities and hangups. And those things aren't going to make us happy. And so those can't actually be the checklists. But if you don't use, and I'm not picking on Tinder, but if you don't use Tinder, it could take you decades to find that out instead of months. Right. Right. Because it could take you several hundred experiences to really verify that it's not just her or her or her or him or him or him. It's actually that you were misguided, that you had the wrong sense of where people would resonate with you. So a lot of type A people think that a type A person is who they have to be with. Mm -hmm. Danielle is a introvert. I'm an extrovert. And I don't know. i never had a checklist, but I wouldn't have probably written introvert on some checklist of mine. Mm -hmm. But, really loving somebody is about throwing the checklist out the window. Mm -hmm. And so thank goodness I wasn't like trying to satisfy some checklist because I'm not sure introvert would have like made the list for me, but that doesn't make us incompatible. It's, I had a, I would have had a bad list if I had been making a list.
0: How did you, how did you first meet?
1: Uh, we met in 2001 in Pittsburgh I had just moved there and I had just
0: gotten married together. All right. The Carnegie Mellon connection. Right.
1: Yeah. So, so I had just gotten married and my husband was still in Boston and I needed to find a place to live. And I was uncertain as to whether I'd be able to stay. My mentor had just moved from Yale where I had started my training. I still wasn't quite finished. And my mentor moved to university of Pittsburgh. And so I either had to find myself a new science, science mentor and start all over with a different project or move to Pittsburgh. But as a Canadian, I didn't have a visa that was going to allow me to remain in the U.S. necessarily. Yeah. And so I needed to find, a, I needed to get a waiver. So I needed to find a way to be able to stay. So so, I was looking for a rental. I, I couldn't buy, it. and in Pittsburgh, the housing costs are so low that nobody rents except students. And so every place I looked at was just smelled beer. <laughs> Very different and from the, the area. The floors were all crooked, and it yeah. was just it was sort of it was ridiculously hard to find a rental. And then I found uh, on the web a rental, this cute little house, this guy who was going to Stanford for um, sabbatical, a professor at Carnegie Mellon. And so I went to look at the house and it turned out it, uh, belonged to Sebastian Thrun, who is a good friend of Astro's. Sure. And so I walked in the house and I said, like, I'll take the house. And he said, don't you want to know anything about it? <laughs> don't you want to know <laughs> like what the heating bill is or anything? I was like, no, I'll take the house. <laughs> Cause I, I just, I was so desperate for a place and it was a really <laughs> nice place. So anyway, we hit it off. We had a fun conversation and he said, well, you know what? We're leaving to move to California, but why don't you guys come over? for dinner the weekend before we leave. So my husband was back in town. We went to Sebastian's for dinner and the only other guests were Astro and his then wife Zoe. And we just, we hit it off and our families became friends. So we were friends for a long time.
0: So let me, this is, um, so many questions I want to ask you guys. And it's, it's been very sort of fascinating and, and, uh, comically tragic to watch my own monkey mind at work in the last say five years, just as like more and more friends are getting married, more and more friends are having kids. Uh, (laughs) you know, the, like, well, maybe someday I'll have grandkids kind of comments or maybe it's more frequent than they (laughs) used to be. And, uh, the anxiety that's produced. And what I've realized is one of my big fears is, uh, and, and this is probably right. I mean, I think a lot of it's addressed in Sacred Cows, but is I don't want to lose. I don't want to do a bad job. And so I don't, if I think I'm going to do a bad job, I don't sign up for the job. Does that make sense? But what yeah. counts as losing for you? Well, is it I'll a bad
2: marriage or not, or failing to get married? No I'll, no,
0: I'll tell you. So here's, here's a very granular concern. So when I was thinking, when I was listening to your story about your, your friend and Tinder and how he, had the you know, doing on thirty dates with you know whatever I'm just like you know twenty eight year old Stanford grad technical women and he's like ah, I don't think they're my type part of me and to call me cynical but you could read you know Sex at Dawn or just look at you know monkeys if you want uh, and I was like maybe he just got bored maybe he had exhausted. Maybe he was looking for novelty after that point. And that's a fear that I have in so much as I've been very good at, uh, monogamy. I've never cheated on a girlfriend and, um, but I find after a certain period of time, I kind of have to, I have to put a part of my, a a lot, a part of my psyche into like a straitjacket to make it work. And, um, it affects my mood and behavior and everything else. And so I've, I've never had an issue up to say several years uh, of dating someone, but I, I fear, my fear is that I marry someone and then X number of years into it, who knows five six seven eight nine ten 10, whatever it might be. I cheat or that need, I could call, call it a want, but I feel like it's very much hardwiring uh, screws everything up. And it's like, we have kids and then the whole thing explodes. Um, how do you encourage someone to think about that? Because I, I honestly, this is something I really struggle with because I don't want to be a bastard. I don't want to lie. I don't want to sign up for something that is a doomed mission from the start. How do you think about this stuff? I I'm so tr- like troubled by this. And I don't even know where to start. It's a big question. But.
2: Well, I mean, if, you wanted to get married to me. I would hope that you would bring this up with me before we got married. Right. Right. And are you proposing?
0: <laughs> <laughs> I accept. <that> <laughs> right on. Wait, <laughs>
2: Mission accomplished. Me. <wait>. <laughs> no, no. He's going to be wife number two. Oh yeah. No, no. This is a very like middle right, well, of right, my right, concubine right. kind of
0: situation. Okay.
2: Yeah, right. Wife number two. <laughs> no. <laughs> If I were your uh, lady friend and we were considering getting (laughs) married, I would, at the very least, want you to talk to me about this. Yeah. Uh, Now, that might be a deal killer for me, but if this is something you're really worried about and you talk to me about it and then I say, look, deal killer, you know, that's probably not the right person for you to marry. So there's some good self-selection going on there. Yeah. I, I can't promise, but I don't think we're the only ones who feel like this. Yeah. If you're worried about that, wait till you don't feel like that anymore hmm. because I think we both feel that that's not uh, an issue for us. Yeah. Not because we are sexual beings and, and have desires and, you know, it's not like we don't crave novelty generally, but I don't think either of us has like a pressure to leave our marriage to seek out more novelty. Yeah. And I think it, it's possible for many people, I bet possible for you to feel like that. And maybe that's just part of your body telling you you're not ready to get married or you haven't found the right person to get married to.
0: Yeah. Entirely possible. Yeah. It's, it's, um, it's, it's, uh, it seems to be a very uh, perennial challenge for a lot of people. Um, not just men. I think just men, just coming back to the sort of societal framework within this is operating. It's just more accepted, I think, for men to talk about it or to lament it. But um, let's shift gears just a little bit. So when when you guys have a conflict, I'm very curious, is there, what have you guys found to be the most effective way of resolving conflict? Because I think a lot of the relationship problems that end relationships ultimately could probably, not probably, but a lot of them could be averted if people just, Managed conflict better or set expectations in the way that you were talking about since, you know, me being wife number two and everything. Uh, So how do you how, how do you guys think of conflict resolution with a significant other?
2: I want her to talk first because I don't want to get yelled at.
1: <laughs> I'm the boss. Yeah. Does what I right. say. Well, there's, no yeah. Yeah. there's no
2: conflict. There's
0: <laughs> no conflict. Or, or else, yeah, yeah, it's an iron fist. As <laughs> so, soon as you see any sign of dissent, you smash it with an iron fist. It works. Yeah. yeah. It's working really well.
1: No, I mean, I, I don't think that there's, uh, there are a lot of books written about this. So I don't think anything that I could say would, um, would be novel. I'm not looking for novel. I'm just looking for effective. I I think if you have basic respect and love for the other person, then you're not going to allow your conflict to escalate to the point where you're hurting the other person's feelings. Mm -hmm. So you're not going to be, I mean, you, if you read a book about how to keep your marriage together or how to not have such bad conflict, they'll tell you things like be respectful. Don't call each other names. You know, that's sort of the basis. The basis The things we learned in kindergarten, Um, and, and when you're in a relationship, that's a loving relationship. I think that you often don't do those things because causing pain to the other person causes you pain yourself. Um, I think that we try to be as rational as we can. I Mm -hmm. I think that helps both of us, but that's just a style thing. There are people for whom that doesn't work, you know, just Mm -hmm. like everyone has different coping mechanisms. Like Freud had all these different you know, mechanisms for how people cope with various psychological disturbances. We have our, like our our ways to intellectualize everything, but that just, that works for us. It's not for every couple, but, but I I think that's good. Mm -hmm. And then I think the other thing is we agree to disagree about Mm -hmm. some stuff. We don't always come to a place where we're both like, yep, I totally get your perspective. I totally agree with you, Mm -hmm. but we can respect the fact that we don't always completely share the other person's Mm -hmm. opinion. And then that's
2: okay. I I would say I agree. I know how ridiculous this sounds, but I think that the conflict resolution in a way that works the best for us is going to sleep. Hmm. Just, it's so frustrating, but whenever we have conflict, if we allow ourselves to sit up and talk about it for four hours, typically the conflict really doesn't go away. No. Yeah, But it doesn't matter. If we talk about it for four minutes or four hours, the conflict, if anything, will get worse, typically. Yeah, that's right. My experience. But yeah. if we go to sleep the next morning... We're like lovebirds again, and we like can't even reconstruct why we're we're like. (laughs) See, this is really and and so, but we've gotten good at it. So now we will just say. Sometimes it's hard, but we we are much better than we used to be at just saying. Why don't we go to sleep? We'll talk about it tomorrow, and we both understand that that means like we're being ridiculous. It doesn't feel ridiculous, but we also understand intellectually that we're going to feel different the next morning, and then we run the experiment, and sure enough. The next morning, we don't want to fight about it anymore.
0: No, I like this advice because it's simple, but it's it's also – it runs counter to what you are told a lot in relationship advice books, which is never go to bed angry. Like, you have to, you know, resolve it before you go to sleep. And my experience, is yours, it's like, all right, the only thing that was just accomplished is we took something that was, like, nonsense and two humans being stupid <laughs> – from four minutes to four hours, and now we're just <laughs> not going to get any sleep, and we're going to be bitchy and grumpy tomorrow. Right. Right. Like, yeah. <laughs> not much point to that. Okay. Um, what other what other uh, sort of rituals or routines or uh, habits do you guys have that you think help the relationship or help the family?
1: We have a lot of rituals in our relationship, and those have just grown and multiplied. We joke that eventually our whole day is just going to be a twenty four hour. Ritual, because we've, we've built all these rituals into our lives. And, yeah. But the rituals are really wonderful and they help to preserve our sanity when things are crazy. I mean, we have four kids. We've each got two. So it's a, it's, there's a lot of chaos sometimes, yeah. but having our rituals where, you know, after. Work as long as the sun is still up. We have we carve out a period of time, even when the kids are there, to go and sit in the papa sun
0: in our backyard, and we have our special drink. You say the papa sun. Yeah. Wait, what is? It? I'm putting a hyphen in there like Japanese stuff. <laughs> What's a papa sun?
1: It's a it's a it's a chair, a, a bamboo frame with a big cushion in it.
0: Oh, sounds great. Yeah. It okay. Is. It's comfy.
1: Um, So we will do that. And then we have a a morning routine. This is where we
0: have our monogamy. This is (laughs) where you have your monogamy, which is a nickname for... Explain the drink. I love this. It is a
2: rosemary martini.
0: How how does one make a rosemary martini?
2: So it's not a secret. We're... Uh, we only drink it when we're together, but we're very happy to push it on other people, though typically other people don't enjoy it. Which but, is one of the jokes about yes. it being monogamous. <laughs>
1: right. It seems like we're the only two people who actually like it. Right.
2: <laughs> but the, the, recipe, the recipe is three parts rosemary-infused vodka, mm-hmm. two parts vanilla-infused cognac, and one part lemon juice. Mm-hmm.
0: Hmm.
2: And there's some sweetness from the vanilla, and then there's the tartness from the lemon juice, and the uh, aromatic uh, sort of pungentness of the rosemary and the, the vodka, and it's it's really oh, wonderful. I'll have to try that.
0: And so by infusing, really, I mean, you're just taking like a sprig of rosemary and dropping it in the bottle.
2: Uh, well, we take a lot about of sprigs, 20 yeah. sprigs, oh, drop okay. it you're in like, the bottle, like and leave jam. it there for 24 hours okay. until it's really rosemary So I like this. I like this. This
0: is
1: so that's one ritual. And then we have a morning ritual where Astro always wakes up earlier than I do. And he goes and makes coffee and then he waits till he thinks I'm waking up and he brings the coffee to bed.
2: that's, that's us sitting in the papasan and
0: drinking (laughs) dream. Oh man, that's a great ritual. So, so in the morning, so he wakes up earlier. And when he thinks that you're not going to throw a book at him.
1: Right. <laughs> I would um, throw books. I yeah. worship books. <laughs> Worse.
0: Like, <laughs> like, not me, but know. the ninja stars.
1: Yeah. 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 <laughs> I care more about the books. Molotov cocktails,
0: right. <laughs> so he'll come and he'll wake you up?
1: Yeah. And then we have our time in bed where we just snuggle and drink our coffee. And yeah. that's also sort of sacrosanct time. And the kids are up and they're doing their thing. But we just, we carve out that time so that we're in our little bubble. And we start our day out just... By being just the two of us and having this calm yeah. moment.
0: And this is now this is before the kids get up?
1: No, they were they're they're up and, they're and up. getting themselves ready. Yeah. I mean they're older now. They were yeah. 13, 12, 11, and 10. Okay. So they're old, they're old enough
0: to. Yeah, they're not banshees necessarily. They're no,
1: not... and they don't need us to do everything well, for them. They're okay.
2: self-organizing
0: banshees. <laughs> <laughs> and no, when, when the kids were younger, in both cases, I'd be interested to hear uh, So we were chatting before we started recording about, uh, this, this article that was written some time ago by, I'm blanking on the author's name. Uh, what was that? Aya wallet. I think so. Yeah. About how she loved her Uh, husband. And I'm paraphrasing here, but prioritized her husband over her kids or, or loved her husband more than her kids or something like that. Mm -hmm. Um, what I'm curious to know is, so, what, what, what have you found the balance to be in terms of uh, when handling conflict resolution or anything else, uh, siding with the spouse over the kids or the kids over the spouse? I, I think that, like you said, Astro, earlier about uh, expectations being clear, I, I was very fascinated when I was in college, took a year off of college for a whole lot of reasons. We can talk about it another time. Uh, I was on the extended plan. And I lived with this fascinating Mormon guy who was very high up at Unilever, and he said that part of the reason he felt his family had a very low degree of conflict is that he his wife was always prioritized over his kids, hmm. so they couldn't be divided, and so it made conflict resolution much easier. And I'm not saying that's the answer, but it was it was thought-provoking enough to a college kid who really wasn't thinking about marriage at all to stick with me. So I'm curious uh, sort of how you think about managing the spouse or significant other relationship with the kid relationship.
1: I don't think it has to be about love. I mean, I don't think there's anything wrong with loving your husband more than your kids or loving your kids more than your husband. I, I mean, I, I wouldn't cast judgment on anyone for how they love. I think mm-hmm. love is just what it is. It, it yeah. happens. It's not something we control, but, but I think that being a team is absolutely necessary. And I think that this is the message that we always try to give to the kids, which is that we're, we're on the same team and they're on the same team. And yeah. that may seem like we're setting things up to yeah. be a little war at home, but, it, but I think it works because they, they band together more yeah. and they don't try to divide and conquer yeah. With us because you know that we will refuse to allow them to divide us yeah.
2: yeah oh totally yeah. we're playing two men down as it is yeah. <laughs> if if we allowed any opportunity you know so we're like you know fighting back to back like batman and robin <laughs> if they could separate us and like take one of us down yeah. and then come get the other one yeah. uh, we do, we over. never survived yeah. we came over yeah
0: uh, what is what is some of the worst advice do you, that you think people are routinely given about relationships? And that could be marriage, but just I'll keep it broad. Just about re- significant other type relationships.
2: Well, here's one of the ones that bothers me a lot. Um, we refer to it as the defective cow in, in the book, which is... There's a strong social narrative. It's one of these other boogeymen in our society that if you are married and you are in an unhappy marriage and you're getting anywhere close to thinking of leaving, you're not just a bad person. I'll get back to how bad a person you are in a minute, but you're also a broken person. You are a defective person because you got married to them. So obviously, because... I mean, it's, it would be even worse if you were a liar. You at some point loved them, so you lost your way. Mm. So you were whole, now you're broken, and it is your job to mend yourself. And we'll know that you're mended, we'll know that you're no longer a broken human being when you love your spouse again. And this narrative is incredibly strong in our society and confuses people very badly. Because, not for all of them, but for some of them, the answer might be, actually, I'm not broken. I'm just not love, in love with my spouse anymore. Yeah. But if you don't allow that to be one of the possible explanations for why you're having a hard time in your marriage, if the only possible explanation is that you're a broken human being, people spend a lot of time being very unhappy at themselves and trying, completely futilely to fix themselves when the problem is in fact, not that they're a bad person, that they're not trying hard enough, all the things that they go to their therapist and say, so yeah. that's, and that's I think it's not
1: just, I mean, love, I mean, love is that it encompasses desire as well. Yeah. Cause this is probably even more common with sexual desire than it yeah. is with love. Cause I think a lot of people still really do love their spouses, but yeah. are not sexually attracted to them. Right. And this idea of focusing on like, what is wrong with you that you lack any sort of libido is i mean some people do have medical reasons or psychological reasons for why they may have an abnormal desire for sex but we don't as a society spend enough time talking about the fact that sometimes it's about the relationship you know it might be that if you were with a different person and maybe it's a novelty thing as you were talking about before maybe there are other issues but we're so afraid as a society of coming close to that because that is threatening because that might mean that well we can't be married anymore if right. you know if the problem is not you if it's not your libido that's got to be fixed it must be that our relationship has isn't working and maybe one of the solutions is you need to be with someone else right. and that and that's not something we want to talk about but i think yeah. it does cause a lot of pain and confusion for people yeah. that we're we're not willing to at least bring that up like sure. if that may not be the cause but the fact that we never bring that up as a potential cause. And I think it's a lot more common for the yeah. cause than we let on is it's, I think it's hurting people.
0: Yeah. Uh, do you, do either of you know any, uh, long-term single people who, uh, older than 40, you would consider to be genuinely happy. Yeah. Okay. Tell, well, tell me about them. Um, because here's, I'll give you, I'll give know, you, a, I'll, you I'll, you, out I'll give you a timeout so you can, I <laughs> can think for a second. Because part of me is like, you know, yes, he just got married, but like George Clooney had a pretty good run of things, and it's like, I wonder if there is, especially as a male, I just, I, I've, I felt so much pressure from different corners uh, in the last few years related to marriage. And I'm like, is it really so bad? Like I'm a pretty happy guy. Uh, I would love to be with the, the, you know, the true love of my life, of course. Uh, but if there's any degree of doubt, it doesn't see it's, I don't want to rule that out as a completely non viable path, at least for a period of time. uh, and, uh, so I'm, I'm just very curious to know because the, now the, the feedback that I would get, which is very much kind of this conversation in the book and elsewhere about societal pressure will be like, well, like, that's great. You can focus on yourself and do this, this, and this, but like, that's not true happiness. And it's just like, well, maybe, <laughs> maybe, uh, but you know, maybe you're taking a bunch of baggage and like anger and stuff that you have and been throwing it on me. Uh so For sure. so yeah so I'd be curious to hear of sort of any single people male or female uh, who you think are genuinely happy and why you think that's the case. And it doesn't have to necessarily do with their singlehood um uh, but right. you mean specifically single people. Yeah.
1: Yeah. No, I mean I think that we've lived long enough now to have seen a lot of our friends go through various states of singleness, marriedness, divorcedness, right. remarriedness. <laughs> you know, the, we've seen people cycle through these things, and I think people are, in a way, their own best control because you, people probably have different happiness set points. You know, yeah. some people are probably just more predisposed to being happy than other people are, and I think what I've gathered, just anecdotally from watching friends go through various types of relationships and, and singlehood, is that they're, they're kind of, there are times when they're very happy as married people or as a couple and times where they're very happy as single people and times where they're very unhappy in both situations. And I don't think that their overall happiness correlates very well with their marital status. I think if you sort of graphed it, there wouldn't be like a super good correlation to how happy they were. You know, when they first got married there, there was a lot of happiness and then there were some very dark moments and yeah. then you know after they split up they were happy again they're just they they go through happiness and sadness at kind of the same right yeah. as happy as single or as married people and the people i know who have remained single their whole lives who are now in their 40s and 50s i think that they the reason that they're So the people that who seem unhappy are the people who are obsessed with why aren't I married? You know, Mm. I should be married. Society is telling me I should be married. Should I have had children? You know, can I still have children? What's wrong with me? But the people I know who just have a very strong inner sense of this is how I'm meant to be. You know, I tried being part of a couple. It really isn't my thing. I just like, it just doesn't really work for me. They seem as happy to me. I mean, you never know how happy any other person really is, Sure. but they certainly seem as happy to me as any married Mm -hmm. people I know.
2: I would also say that I think one of the things that does correlate with happiness, this is well known to be part of what tends to cause happiness in people, is a sense of uh, gratitude, a sense of connection to other people, and a sense of caring for spending time on thinking about people other than yourself. Now having a family happens to drive all of those things. And so there can be sort of happiness benefits of a kind. There's lots of stressors also, but happiness benefits to being part of a family. But that doesn't mean that you can't get all of those same benefits as a single person, right? And I know, for example, entrepreneurs who who treat their companies like their families and they really care a lot about their companies and about the people in the company. They care about it more than they care about themselves. And not just because they're trying to win or make a lot of money, but because they're very purpose driven and they're very community oriented. And this is the community that they've created and they they care for. And so I've seen people who are single have all of the same benefits that you get from having the benefits of having a family. Mm-hmm. So I think it's a sort of false sense that you have to be selfish or an egomaniac if you stay single. I don't think that's a necessary outcome.
0: Mm-hmm. Ah, so much food for thought. These are big, big subjects. I mean, I've, I've, there are very few things that really, really, really stress me out these days. And it's like this relationship stuff is one of them because I think there's there's so much subjectivity involved and, uh, I like to be able to kind of like slice it and dice it and put it on a plate of glass and be like, okay, here's what we have. Great. Okay. All right. Fantastic. What are our assumptions? Okay. And here are like three or four <laughs> things we can test and great, which is where like Tinder is, 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 potentially, you know, valuable where you can spend like three weeks figuring out like, oh, maybe this isn't my type as opposed to three years or three decades. Uh, what, uh, what are the uh, are little things that both of you do independently to uh, help happiness or well being? So, not, not a routine with the other person, but things that you guys do separately or individually that sort of help you maintain an even keeled sense of well being? Well, exercise.
1: I think that's a pretty, not, not very interesting answer.
0: No, no, I like the real answers, not the...
2: Well, exercise exercise is the answer, but we do a lot of exercise together. So it happens to be that if you separated us for a year, we would both keep exercising. It is also the case that whenever we can, we exercise together, and it's one of our favorite things to do. It's one of our rituals.
0: Mm -hmm. And that's uh, running or what other types of... Running. Running primarily. Yeah, yeah. Do you talk or do you just run?
1: We usually talk sometimes yeah. we just run, but, okay. but I've always felt like exercise is the the cure for everything, like yeah curious what agree. Else you kind of
0: no I agree. Like, totally my, agree
2: my favorite form of our talking when we run is she listens to more podcasts than I have time to listen to, and she'll she'll narrate podcasts. Like like this one, she'll hear something that she really loves, and then in an hour long jog, she will narrate. I think often better than the podcast itself, which sometimes she later plays for me, <laughs> almost like thought for thought everything in the podcast. It's a particularly fun
0: way for us to spend our time. You
1: could just listen to the radio or listen. To the <laughs> no, podcast. it's way
0: better. What your, it's now. What are your go to podcasts? You mentioned I'm an
1: NPR junkie. Yeah. NPR. Yeah, so I listen to all the NPR ones.
0: Okay. You tried? Have you have you have you sort of wandered out into the uh, the uh, the otter neighborhoods outside of uh, uh, public radio, or not yet? Not
1: not much. I I probably should do more of that, but yeah. there are just so many. There's so many podcasts, and I can't listen to as many as there I, are. So many. As I like.
0: I've recommended it before, but I'll recommend it again. Check out Hardcore History. Okay. It's so amazing. Yeah. Maybe one episode every two to three months, and it's. Phenomenal! Check out Wrath of the Cons. It's a multi-part series on uh, Genghis Khan, as he says, Genghis. Uh, so uh, the let me let me ask a couple of uh, very different questions. They're not necessarily relationship related, but they're they're questions that I know the listeners enjoy hearing answers to, and I enjoy hearing answers to. So uh, the the first one might sound odd, but it's it's related to a, a purchasing behavior. So uh, what is the most impactful $100 or less that you've spent recently? And it could be on anything. But uh, curious, and it could be something free for that matter. But uh, what have you spent $100 or less on in the last six months, year, that has disproportionately positively impacted your life? That's a really hard question. We can plant that seed and come back to it.
2: I'm going to tell you the first thing I thought of. It's not something we spent money on, but as many people do, we pile up stuff that we don't need anymore. And we took a big pile of it to Goodwill today. Mm -hmm. And we were saying how wonderful the Goodwill sort of jujitsu is that many people don't understand that it's not just that they happen to sell the stuff that they sell cheaply, but they have this balance just right where they take the stuff that they get for free and they market up a non-trivial amount, but still a lot less than the people who go to Goodwill would otherwise pay for that stuff. It has no value to us. We would otherwise have thrown it away. So it's sort of something for nothing, but then they take the profit that they make from that and they have other philanthropic enterprises. They use up all of that profit doing other things. And I don't know. So that was the first thing I thought of is, um,
1: that's not really, spe- that's the I, that's, that I know it's, 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 because we were saying how great it is that we give away something that has no value anymore for us and they derive yeah. so much value from it. Right. Yeah. Like, yeah. I know it was just, it's just it's the first world. thing
2: I thought of was, no, 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 was no, drop yeah. it. It's, it. It's not just that it feels good to like donate something. It's that I particularly love the idea of, mm-hmm of a well-crafted business model. And there are many NGOs that are just highly non-efficient with the money that they get, to put it diplomatically. (laughs) And Goodwill is not one of them. Goodwill has actually got the sort of flywheel going in a really positive way where everybody goes home happier. (laughs) And it's just like the world should be more like that, so.
1: Oh, you know what has made a big difference? Actually, hmm? so this is not to plug Google because yeah, Astro
0: works for Google, but it's okay. Google play. Yeah.
1: Getting that a family account for Google play has really changed everything because we used to have to listen to the radio in the car. Cause the kids all want to listen to pop music and they would switch from one station to another. And we'd have to listen to this horrible advertising on the the radio. And then at home they would play it on YouTube. So then they'd all be hunched around the computer and then they'd end up watching videos and it would just be all sort of choppy watching what they wanted. And so we finally got them their All you can eat buffet of Google play. And now they can, for a flat fee every month, get as much music as they want and it has made our car rides much nicer
2: <laughs> right. <laughs> and actually right and, and then because for whatever it is like 799 a month, they can make their playlists as long as they want. Instead of listening to the 10 popular songs, right. they've made playlists that are several hundred songs long. Right. They left today. <laughs>
1: and we kept their playlist on. And we on. kept their
2: playlist on oh, because right. at least it's not repeating <laughs> every 20 minutes right. the song we heard 20 minutes ago.
0: And
1: they're not asking us to buy music for them. That's right. That was Very cool. Money.
0: Very cool. I like that. Uh, oh, yeah. So, a side note very closely related. It's taken me years to upgrade to like. Pandora Pro, which is like $3 a month or whatever, to get rid of the horrible ads. ads. (laughs) And now you wonder why. Yeah, and you're just like, why did it take me so long to do this? And what's really funny is I set up my Pandora account initially when I was on Long Island, so all of the ads... Are targeted locally to Long Island, so it's like, hey, come on down to Cormac Ford and you know minivans. We'll you out. It'll be great, yeah. And like all of these ads, and they're so bad. So finally, I was like, all right, I'm gonna sit down for five minutes and like fix this problem once for all. It's like, yeah, three dollars a month or whatever the hell it was. That's
1: so, three dollars, right?
0: So well spent. Yeah. Oh my god. Uh, so it'd be like, you know, pretending to dance, tango with my girlfriend or something. We'd be like on oh, this like romantic moment. And then it'd be like, yeah, and then, <laughs> this is Jimmy Jones from Matt Cormack and uh, Ford again. It's like, oh, Jesus, really? Like on Saturday night. Goes the mood. <laughs> there goes the magic. There uh, goes the magic. So uh, books. So I want to talk about books for a second and documentaries. Uh And there there, there are two options. The the first is favorite book, if there's one that immediately comes to mind. Usually people don't know, and they kind of just pick one randomly out of memory. Or most gifted book. The book you've gifted to the most people. Uh, Let's start with books. Astron or Danielle.
2: I'm not even going to try to go for favorite book, too many books. But I will tell you the sort of recent books. Okay. Most recent gifted book from our family is What If. This is the XKCD. Oh, yeah, I've seen it. Amazing book. The yeah. kids are obsessed with this. They yeah. like can quote it from memory. They've learned probably more science from the What If book than they have from their science class in the last two years. And we've given out quite a few copies. And we just finished reading. We read in bed together um, a non-trivial percentage of the evenings, like that's just what no, we do. Read
0: silently no, silently no, 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 no. way
2: we read to each other. I Florida. mean, at least lately, I've been the one who was reading. So I just finished reading her Ready Player One, which oh, was like, you
0: know, I just bought that audiobook. I
2: haven't. It's so much fun. So much fun. And now we're in the doldrums because it was so fun that we're like pouting because nothing's going to be as good. You know that
0: feeling yeah, after you read it? I do. I have a suggestion. Right. Yeah. Uh, do you have any interest in fantasy? Yeah, yeah. That was no, no no story. no yes <laughs> know, yes. yes. Uh, the Name of the Wind by Patrick Rothfuss alright well, I've yet to suggest it to anyone who hasn't enjoyed it alright uh, now the other option uh, that also has a really good track record so far as far as people have recommended it to is The Graveyard Book by Neil Gaiman it's about a young boy who was raised in a graveyard uh Really, really stellar. I think uh, the the audiobook is partially what drew me in, just because Neil Gaiman is such an incredible narrator. Okay, so what if and it's a, right.
1: isn't the Graveyard Book a recreation of a of another famous
0: book? Ooh,
2: that's a good question. I, I don't it know.
1: Would, I don't know. I just
2: thought. I don't know. It might be. A, what about you, my love?
1: Uh, well, books. I would say the the one book that I probably tried to push on the most people, and it really didn't take, so I stopped pushing it on people, <laughs> was Oscar and Lucinda by Peter Carey. Okay. I just fell in love with that novel. Oscar uh, and
0: Lucinda. Yeah.
1: When I was... Uh, this was a long time ago. I just really, really loved that book. What
0: did you like about it?
1: It was just so lyrical. Every single chapter is like a little jewel. He has the most amazing way of bringing to life a scene with not just beautiful language but incredible imagery like a, a coat rack with cats and coats on it looking like it's covered with crows like you had this image of these birds who are gonna take flight and um, this one of a, a bird diving into the water piercing the membrane between dreams and reality and he just has mm-hmm. this these wonderful turns of phrases or this woman who there are parts that are really funny too it's mm-hmm. it's it's not just all lyrical but This, uh, the Lucinda character in the book gets really angry and yells at someone. And then the, she realizes that she's created a scandal and this is going to create a problem. And there's this great image of her saying that as her anger cooled, it was like an athlete who had torn a muscle in the middle of a race or a game. And then as the anger went away, then she could feel the pain, uh-huh. you know, the pain set in. It's such a common feeling, right? Where yeah, yeah, you yeah. do something in a moment of anger, yeah. but this comparing it to this, to this athlete yeah. who's just feeling this like pain that. for the first time. Anyway, I love that. Why and the other they- one I love is the hours for a very similar reason.
0: The hours by Michael Cunningham. Yeah. No. Why so, did the first beautiful. one not take? So you're trying to push it, but it didn't I take think
1: because it doesn't have, it's not very plot driven. It's kind of long Uh, and it's really about the moments and about the writing. And the plot is very slow to get going until you get halfway through the book. You're really not sure where the book is going. And then it's a romance, but it's not a very uplifting. See, This is
2: why we're each other's other half. My favorite books have the exact same problem and I push them on people and nobody likes them either. It's the Gorman guest trilogy by Mervyn peak.
0: What was the name of the Gorman guest? Gormenghast.
2: Gormenghast. It's how uh, oh, do you spell that? G <laughs> o r g e m g h a okay. s t. Gormenghast. It's the name of a castle. It's uh, a, it's this castle. It's it's like a fantasy story, but there's no magic or witches or elves or anything. It's just this castle that's set in this very abstract place, and it's just the political life in the castle. It's like
0: downtown Abbey in a castle.
2: Uh it's more abstract than that.
1: It's like okay. a cartoon version, but a very gorgeous
2: huh. right. cartoon. But it was it's written by an artist and a poet who had until he wrote the first book never written a novel. Huh. And so, and it reads like that. It they are word paintings. Right. Um and so many people read them and just are like I just I can't keep going. Uh but I just I have another I book them. recommendation for you. Yeah.
0: Uh, it's called Motherless Brooklyn. It's about a, uh, it's by Jonathan Lethem. It's a fantastic, hilarious novel about a, uh, detective with Tourette's syndrome. <laughs> and it's based in Brooklyn. And, uh, it, it fully embraces all of the cliches of the detective genre. It's, I love it. It was recommended to me by two staunch critics who seldom recommend books, my mother and my brother. And I can count on one hand the number of books that have been recommended to me by both of those people. So Motherless Brooklyn might also be a fun one. Uh, when, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll uh, ask each of you separately. So Astro, when you think of the word successful, who is the first person who comes to mind? Uh,
2: the first person who came to my mind was Elon Musk. I don't know that I would... Yeah, I mean, obviously he's a successful person, but there's so many different kinds of success.
0: Uh, no, let's dig into that. Yeah, that's, that's worth exploring, I think. I
2: admire the fact that he has single-handedly done what most other people need a large crew to help do. He has started a series of really successful things, and he's highly involved and... Um, I I admire that sort of boundless ambition combined with the seriousness about digging in and doing what it takes to get it done. And he's quite purpose-driven, which I happen to like also.
0: If you had to put uh, half of your net worth into SpaceX or Tesla, which one would you choose and why? Dramatic wine pouring. Um, exactly.
2: <laughs> that's that's the sound of Astros money going down the drain. <laughs> no, I'm going to say SpaceX. Okay. Um, I think Tesla will be a more success financially successful business, but it would be hard to get as excited about that. It is just inherently more audacious, more. Um, in the spirit that moves me to dream about going to Mars, which is what fundamentally, um, drives Elon yeah. and especially about SpaceX. It, it's just, um, the ethos of that adventure is worth more to me than the dollars that would be created by better electric cars. So that's not a knock on Tesla, but I, that's my new jerk reaction. Yeah.
0: Okay, cool. What about you?
1: I don't, I think I'm going to take a pass on that one. I don't really have Ooh, nothing. I, like that. Nothing, I like, like that. Like leaps to mind. No, no. I, I mean, not that, that there are just so many successful people and I, I, I don't know. I feel like I,
0: it's the benefit of going second or the curse of going second.
1: Well, I had all this time to think of so, some, And I was thinking, I was thinking like, who could I, but there are just so oh, many
0: okay. uh,
1: people. I, just, I, don't, I don't know where to start.
0: If you could choose anyone throughout history to ask a hundred questions, I'm not going to ask you to give the questions, but who would you, who would you choose? Ask a hundred questions. About anything. About anything. Life, career or otherwise. Uh, Preferably a factually verifiable figure.
1: Right. I think I'd be most interested in uh, talking to one of the Greek philosophers because I feel like we have a lot of documentation about what they thought and a fair amount about how they lived, mm-hmm. but it's not a complete picture. Yeah. And um, obviously, they spent a lot of their lives thinking very deeply. Yeah. about things, but I would like to get their sort of take on the questions that
0: sure. I, would, I would want to ask them. Any particular philosophers?
1: Probably. I mean, Plato is, yeah. I think, the most interesting.
0: <laughs> interesting cat. Yeah. Yeah. They're all such fascinating, conflicted characters. <laughs> just like modern human beings. Imagine that. Mm. Uh, if you had to point to ways in which your medical or scientific training has helped your your relationships with family or significant others. Is there anything that you could point to?
1: Yeah, I think there are a lot of things to point to. Um, probably the most significant is that being in medicine, you deal with people from all walks of life, from all cultures, all parts of the world and working in an intensive care unit, you're working with families and patients who are, in some of the most dire straits that they've ever been in. And I think that it really forces you to not just pay lip service to seeing things from the perspective of other people, but actually having to really try to understand where they're coming from and how to connect with them. It's really important in those times to connect When you're trying to talk about decisions surrounding life and death, you really need to have a strong connection. And I think that opens your mind so much to realizing how differently different people feel about the world and think about the world. And it puts you in the mindset of having to adapt yourself to their way of thinking. And so I, I feel like that has been very valuable that I don't sort of have a knee jerk reaction to whether... A perspective someone has is right or wrong. That I've been trained over the years to not see it in black and white terms, but just see it as you know, people are different.
0: And, and so it's it's sort of pragmatically trained you to have uh, an immediate degree of empathy that you wouldn't have otherwise.
1: Empathy, but also just not to shut my mind to what they're trying to say because no, yeah. they, they might have, you know, I might be speaking with someone. I'm not religious. I might be speaking to someone who's very religious and I need to try to see the world from their perspective. And when you're talking to a teenager, yeah. <laughs> you, you need to <laughs> employ, you know, employ these sorts of skills and see that they may have a, very, a radically different way of seeing the world than you have of seeing the world.
0: Yeah. What were you, uh, what type of medicine were you involved with in the ICU?
1: So I worked in the medical intensive care unit, mm-hmm. which is the unit for everyone who's severely sick enough to either be on machines to support mm-hmm. them or are going to soon potentially need to be on machines to support them mm-hmm. um, who don't have a surgical issue. Got so on. the people okay. who have had surgery, they go to the surgical intensive care unit. And then there's also a separate cardiac intensive care unit. So if you have a heart attack, you go somewhere else. So we kind of get like, we're the grab bag of everything else. And those
0: (laughs) are chronic sort of progressive diseases. Acute.
1: Well, no, I mean, we see them when they're in their acute phase and hopefully get them better and send them on their way.
0: Okay.
1: Oftentimes they don't get better
0: and this is their sort of last. Got it. So you're having a lot of sort of what if conversations with a
1: lot of, yeah, you have a lot of, a lot of conversations about the end of life because that's a lot of these people were at the ends of their lives.
0: Do any of those conversations in particular stand out to you just that have kind of stuck in your mind?
1: Well, I think, um, yeah, a a few of them do. I think one of the ones that's pertinent to seeing people, a different perspective was, a one of the problems that a lot of the medical professionals, nurses and physicians who work in intensive care units in this country is that we end up having a very different view of the end of life than people who are coming in than the families and patients who are coming in. Our society has such a strong optimism and, and such a belief in the medical system that they believe that everyone's going to be made better. Not everyone. That's an exaggeration. But I think that they have more confidence than maybe is warranted in how much the medical system can do to save their loved ones. And a lot of people have, you know, in order to provide them with hope, they have been told along the way that things were maybe rosier than Mm. they actually were. And then we were put in the position of having to deliver the news that it's unfortunately earlier. Unfortunately, we've already passed the point where there's nothing left to do, and at this this point, it's we're just coming to the end. And, and what's very difficult is when families won't hear that and don't. They want us to continue to provide life support. We know that it's going nowhere. We know that it's just a bridge to like a a more difficult, challenging death for mm-hmm. this person, and that and we feel like we're sometimes torturing these people. They were just causing unnecessary pain and harm mm-hmm. that the outcome's the same, that they're going to die very soon and they may die in one day, it may be two weeks. But if it's two weeks, it's going to be two very horrible weeks. And we feel awful doing that to people. We just feel like it's undignified and it just, people have very strong, the staff have very strong emotional reactions to that. So I had one patient who was a very successful medical researcher who had a type of cancer that had spread throughout his body. And he had insisted on, uh, having it hacked out one piece at a time, even though it wasn't really the thing that you, from a medical perspective, that wasn't going to improve his life expectancy, but he was young. He was only in his forties and he had, you know, been very successful, very well-known scientist. And, um, he insisted that he needed to have, everything done, absolutely everything done. And when I met him, he was at death's door, but because his underlying body was so strong, he could stay at death's door for a long time. You know, it it could take a long time for him to actually die. And I spoke with his wife. We had, um, you know, we had, we had talked to the other teams who had taken care of him and they had said, look, he's never said that he's willing to let people stop with any kinds of aggressive treatment, even if it's futile, even if it's hopeless. And in theory, w- doctors don't have to provide treatment that is futile, mm-hmm. but because we so strongly right now in our culture want to respect the wishes of patients, we often do provide futile care, sure. which is where, the, where it's hard emotionally for everyone. And I had this conversation with his wife and she said to me, she said, look, and she was this lovely, lovely woman. And and she said to me, I know where you're coming from. I totally get what you're saying. I know he's going to be dead soon. And he wanted to die a warrior's death and he is a warrior and this is how he's going to go out. Like he just wants to go out fighting. And I just suddenly felt Hmm. at peace. Hmm. I was like, you know what, from my perspective, this is the wrong thing, but we are honoring his wishes by letting him breathe until the last moment where even a machine can't support him. It's not what I would choose. It's yeah. not what I would choose for anyone I cared about, yeah. but he was dying as a warrior and that was what he wanted. And it, I just, I felt so much better about what we were doing. And it also let me see that. Yeah. There's my perspective is not the huh. only one. Like there are other ways of looking at life and death.
0: Yeah. It's uh, i have a very close friend. Um, I had no idea. He had metastasized pancreatic cancer. And we went on this skiing trip in uh, South America, which I knew was very, very, very expensive for him, uh, with With another friend. The three of us went down and skied in Las Lenas in Argentina. And literally, I think it was less than six months later, he was dead. And uh, it's uh, part of the reason that I read so much of the Stoics, because they, they reflect on death. Some might say obsess <laughs> on death. They can't seem to get tired of talking about it. Uh, how do you think about death, Astra? I mean, what? how do you feel about the prospect of biological death?
2: <laughs> I'm not particularly looking forward to mine, but I've made peace with it, I think. Uh, I recognize that it's going to happen, and I worry, frankly, about people, especially in the tech community, who are obsessed with trying to prevent death. I, I have no objection to generally trying to help people live longer or be healthier while they're alive, more functional while they're alive, those are all good things. It still sometimes smells like kind of a creepy desperation, the way the tech community can get overly obsessed about death. And I think that they're chasing something that they won't find and making themselves miserable in the process because trying to convince themselves that they're going to be able to avoid death which they don't really believe in their hearts, leaves them feeling panicked in a way that if they just made peace with the fact that they're going to die, they could just focus on being happy. Um, My personal philosophy is to live my life as intensely as I can every single day. And if I do that, then it doesn't matter when I go. Um, I had this experience when I was just uh, middle of graduate school but i was playing soccer very competitively still and it was the last time i ever asked someone to take me out of a game i i said take me out and cuz i was i wasn't dying but i just felt like someone else could be doing more for the team because i was sufficiently tired it was the middle of the second half and the coach got me out and as soon as he got me out i was dying to go back in i was just and i thought I am never doing that again. Huh. I would rather collapse on the field. Which was I suppose a somewhat selfish perspective to have, but I just thought, you know what? Wait, it's the coach's job to tell that I'm tired. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I I sort of overthought the whole thing and then I had all these regrets after I got off the field and they couldn't put me back on cuz there's only two subs a game and it's become very metaphorical to me. Hmm it doesn't matter when the game's over as long as I don't leave anything on the field.
0: So no, this is very Vince Lombardi. I like it. So this living intensely, I want to dig into this for a second. When you come to the close of a day, what does a successful day look like versus a, a failed day or a suboptimal day? If want
2: to. It's entirely a perspective thing for me. I mean, I never cross everything off my to-do list
0: well, I mean, just, just just to give some so, people, people yeah. may not be familiar with Google right. X. I mean, let's give some, if you wouldn't mind, giving some examples of the kind of stuff that you guys are working on. And yeah. the, what is the function of Google X? It sounds very okay. X Men.
2: The function of Google X is to try to find some new, really important problems with the world that are not yet Google's problems, uh, and to make them Google's problems. To take on things like the transportation problem. Uh, solving the connectivity problem. There are 5 billion people in the world who don't have connectivity, who are not connected to the internet. Let's make that not be true. There are very few things that would make the world a better place than solving that problem. What could we do to produce electricity cheaper than a coal-fired power plant? Uh, That would radically change the world. And we think we might have a way of doing that uh, via these energy kites that we're working on. Um, so we have some in healthcare, uh, some in sort of human computer interactions like Google Glass. Uh, but each of these have wild, uh, I don't know, the technical equivalent of mood swings every day. We are, you know, I, I came home uh, one day and I told... Our kids. I couldn't tell them this was before Loon had actually launched, but I told them truthfully that one of our creations had gotten free, and we had to send uh, one of our a marine or an ex marine, I guess, uh, after it with a Bowie knife to take it down.
0: Wait, a bowie knife?
2: Yes, and sorry. And I told them that our creation was the size of a house, which was also true. Now, You're talking case, about a balloon. Yes, in this particular case, it was a balloon that was like half inflated and then took off rolling across the countryside. We had uh, an ex-Marine sort of hop a couple fences and chase it down and sort of slash at it with a bowie knife till enough of the helium came out. It stopped rolling it across the central valley. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, the good parts and bad parts kind of play like that. Yeah.
0: Um, Have you guys publicly uh, uh, disclosed how many uh, how many balloons you've released? Uh,
2: several hundred at this point. Yeah. Uh, I think it's, you know, when we're ready, it will take a lot more than several hundred to be put up. No. But... We have, I don't know, on the order of like 100 in the air, but it's a testing process. So whether it was yeah. 100 or 50 or 150 doesn't really matter. Yeah. Um, I think we just had our first balloon, um, sort of, I'm not sure exactly what the birthday was, but you know, we've now had balloon, many balloons that stayed up more than 100 days, many that have gone around the world, uh, you know, on the order of 20 or 30 times. So we're, Running all of the experiments it will take so that Loon can, in the not too distant future, do what we've aspired for it to do, which is to set up a, an infrastructure that then the local telcos in, in various regions can use to provide internet to everyone in their region and, and by doing that everywhere to everyone on the planet, hopefully.
0: And with your subjective assessment of, uh, Success or failure in a given day. How do you, how do you, how do you approach that? Or how do you just feel about it at the end of the day? Like when you're like, fuck yeah, that was a good day. What are the things that contribute to that? Or the like, ah, oh, Jesus. I don't know. I have no idea what I did all day. Maybe you don't have that feeling. I do oh, I, that.
2: I do. I do. <laughs> no, I mean, it's, was I authentic? Did I really bring my. Meaning, did
0: I say what I mean yeah, and do what I say? Yeah, kind of...
2: exactly. Um, did I really bring both my intellect, the best part of me intellectually and the best part of me emotionally to work? Did I really share that with people? Um, did I move them? Did I help them to get to a better place? Um, we um, had a team meeting recently for one of the teams where you know, they have uh, some hard work to do in the not too distant future. And I needed to deliver some, um, hard news to them. And you know, their one version of it could be like you suck, shame on you run harder, run faster. And that was not the version that I gave to them. I helped them be inspired. I helped them feel like a family again in a way I think they had been struggling to feel like. And I left that meeting feeling incredibly good about myself and about them and not just because i had given a rousing speech but because they had met me halfway they had responded in the way that i was hoping for and that's a good day mm. when when i leave the office feeling like i've helped people i've mm. you know i'm uh, someone recently said it's kind of a funny way to put it that i'm like a big flywheel at google x that when things are going well i have no effect but that as soon as things start to wobble, I prevent things from, like, getting crazy.
0: Right, right, right. You're like the safety guy at the amusement park. Well, no, I mean... <laughs> I, I hope not just that, but yeah. Uh, but I, I'd love to ask you just about your own, uh, and, and we'll close up in the next five minutes. Uh, for yourself, uh, I, I feel, as a writer, a degree of kinship with, with what you guys have gone through and what you're you know, tackling at the moment with the writing, uh, for me in the last few years, it's been very much a case of, uh, losing my identity in a way. So I've pegged myself to being say a writer, but then I'm not working on a book. So what am I? And then I'm working on a TV show, but that falls through. What am I? And, uh, I'm not saying you're in that position, but I certainly have been and, uh, not having an, uh, sort of a big team to account to or account for, uh, how do you, at the end of the day, what makes you feel like a day has been successful or not?
1: Well, it, that's very interesting that you should ask that question because I feel the way you do probably times 10. <laughs> I, I was hanging on to my job with my fingernails. I really loved what I did and I couldn't find an equivalent position in California And decided to take a risk and do something very different and that I don't know if I'm at all qualified for and I don't know if I'll have any success at so this is this is actually the big struggle in my life right now Is I spend my days writing and I have no idea if anyone's ever going to read anything that I'm actually writing so every day I ask myself is this, this worth it was it not I think i don't know the things that make me feel like it was a successful day is if i feel like what i wrote was good but i don't always i mean there are days when i just think that was crap <laughs> I spent my day writing something really quite terrible or i don't make any progress on yeah. it so that's that's hard the, the small projects you know we've been writing a lot of op-eds and so on mm-hmm. to support sacred cows
0: and, and you had one that had more than four million 4 million or so, yeah. so at this point, that's, that's a lot.
1: Yeah. So when, so when, when we get, when we get, she has
0: high from, standards, yeah. Four million is a lot. that's, that's <laughs> probably more than anything I've ever read. In fact,
1: So when, when we get <laughs> feedback from people and they say, that was great. That really helped me to see things in a different light. I really appreciated that. Then, then that makes me feel good. But of course, as a writer, most days you get no feedback. At all. I yeah. I, love, I saw this interview with um, the guy, I don't know his name, who wrote The Faults in Our Stars, which oh, my kids God. love. That uh, John Green, I want Is it? I think that's right. Am I making that up? Yeah, yeah thanks, right. John Green. Anyway, he, he gave this interview and, and he was saying that being a writer is like playing Marco Polo, where all you say is Marco, Marco, Marco. <laughs> and then, you know, if you're successful, two years later, finally someone will say, Polo. <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's a great description. <laughs> yeah. Sure. Vonnegut said, I think it is when, when I write, I feel like an armless and legless man with a crown in his mouth. That was a pretty good description. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> All right, guys. Well, where can people learn more about both of you about the book, about what you're up to? Tell us where people can check you out.
2: Uh, they can uh, check out Sacred Cows at uh, Amazon, at Nook, uh, on Google Play. They can get the book. Uh, iTunes has the book. Uh, they can order... Astro has a website. Yeah, you can go to astroteller.net to mm-hmm. learn more about me, or you go to sacredcowsthebook.com to learn more about the book. Um, we just gave this... Uh, TEDx talk, TEDx Boston, about sacred cows uh, that we gave together that I think is a good sort of 15-minute intro to the concepts in the book. It's another good way. Just go to YouTube, and you can uh, check that out, too.
0: Cool. And what was the piece that you wrote that uh, stirred up so much fire?
1: Oh, gosh. What would they call it? American
2: American parenting is killing the American American marriage.
0: (laughs) That is a good. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much for coming over, guys. This is fun. Uh, we should hang out more. And uh, lots of food for thought, lots of stuff for me to consider. And hopefully, everybody else out there listening, you can find the show notes, obviously, on the website. I'll include the links to everything, including the book, at fourhourworkweek.com uh, forward slash podcast. And that is it for this evening. Thank you, guys.
1: Thank you.
2: Thanks so much for having us, Tim. Oh, yeah. My pleasure.